chainsaw history. Yeah, trees be fucking. Nightly Claritin is not really doing much for me right now. Claritin is fucking not helping. No. So, speaking of strange creatures jumping out and killing weed farmers, we can actually how, get this How is thing that started. a lead-in? That's a lead Well, actually, there is a strange creature that jumps out and grabs somebody in this story. So, you know, we'll get there. Okay. That is my way of okay, tying this Okay, so in. monster grabbing. So, welcome to our, our very Are first... there weed farmers in this episode? Because if there you know, are, I'm going to be actually, like, here, super excited. Here's the thing. We don't know what these pioneers were growing. The sources don't really say <laughs> So if we want to just assume there was just a whole <laughs> shitload of weed, we can't rather, who is to say that that's not true? <laughs> History is not supporting this, yeah. however. I cannot, it's not, can neither confirm. They can, they can neither confirm nor deny. That our ancestors were growing shitloads of weed in northern and central Pennsylvania. So this is our the bonus episode, our very first one of Chainsaw History, our now named podcast. Hooray! The idea of the bonus episodes are they're going to primarily live on the Patreon account and be like extra stuff for people who actually directly support us with their money. Even though I believe this one we will release to the wild for free because you got to give them a taste. <laughs> There's a saying where my wife comes from, and it's the first hit's free, kid. <laughs> Oh, Akron. Uh, Akron, Ohio. <laughs> um, just for anyone listening for the first time, uh, be aware this is not safe for work for language. And we are going to be discussing abduction, violence, torture, including against women, children. This is a brutal story about brutal times. So, uh, you know, if you're sensitive to any of that stuff, understand that that's what we're going to be talking about and probably making really inappropriate jokes. And also saying the word fuck a lot. Yes. So, uh, one piece of feedback I got from our first episode was that the opening scene of violence, abduction, and baby murder uh, might lead the audience into thinking that we were unsympathetic to the indigenous peoples of North America. Even though I think anybody who listened to the whole thing can tell where we were coming from. But somebody did say just starting that way kind of was jarring. That it's like, oh, here's a nice, um, here's a bunch of pioneer children who are instantly snatched up by Native Americans. And it might make people think we were on the anti-Native American side, which is absolutely not the case. I'm not on anti-anyone side. Yeah. I mean, history is... Uh, the the first thing everyone needs to know about this is history is complicated. When you look at someone, like an individual, you can usually understand their motivations. Like every once in a while, there'll be a straight-up monster. But most of the time, you can at least see where they're coming from, even if you don't agree or you have this perspective that helps you, you know... So, uh, so I did want to make a statement up top so that our position as Chainsaw History is very clear. The people who lived on this continent before European settlers showed up are among some of the most screwed over people in all of world history. Uh, first, they were ravaged by disease after initial contact with white people. The indigenous tribes of North America were continued victims of treachery and acts of straight-up genocide, from brutal massacres to, this, to the seizing of children to be raised among white families in an attempt to erase these people culturally. Acts of brutality and torture are commonly used to this very day to describe, as justification, rather, for why white Europeans needed to civilize the North American continent. But one visit to your local torture museum at a Renaissance fair will remind you that white people were horrifically torturing each other to death in the name of king, country, and their lord and savior, Jesus Christ. Everyone is terrible. Pretty much everyone's terrible. <laughs> Brutality. That's fucking terrible. 
Brutality is sadly a failing of human beings, and there isn't a specific racial component. Studying history shows you just what people are capable of in both the best and worst ways you can imagine. So, there we go. Our disclaimer. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If Anyone who's paying attention to right now can, can really say, hey, look. Look around you. People are fucking terrible. And it's not just now. People have always been terrible. And then you can always find the... We're the, actually... All, we're doing better as a people. Isn't that tragically sad? Maybe, maybe we're slowly <laughs> stumbling our way to being having a society that has some form of justice. So, let's open up with a question on the actual full topic. Do you remember much about the movie Dances with Wolves? Um, a bit. I'm a Kevin Costner fan. Yeah, and that was... Like that's what that was his kick in the doors. And that was Kevin. Down. That was Kevin's heyday. <laughs> yeah, that's when he literally was like, "Oh yeah, I'm going to direct and star in this epic, you know, movie." So for those who don't know, the film is about a Union soldier from the Civil War who takes a post out on the Western frontier and befriends members of a local indigenous tribe, and a wolf. Yes, and in fact, yeah, the the, <laughs> the main character eventually sheds his white identity to become a proud Sioux warrior named Dances with Wolves. And as Bambi just said, he gets his he gets his name from his new people because he had, at first had tamed a couple of local wolves. He was feeding them, and eventually was playing with them almost like dogs. And they were watching him from a distance. And so when he eventually joined up with them, he got the name Dances with Wolves, which is you know a badass name for sure and a cool name for a movie. I still liked the girl's name in that movie. Her, her Indian name was Stans, Stans with, with a, a fist. fist. Yep, I was just about to get to her. So, yeah, uh, yeah. I was 15 years she old. She punched a motherfucker in the face. I love it. Yeah, now she was strong. <laughs> Great movie. Speaking of her, yeah. Dances with Wolves was the first time I'd heard about a white person going native. Now, in the movie, you were just talking about her, Mary McDonald plays the woman named Stans with a fist. In the story, she was a white woman who was raised among the Sioux after her family had been massacred uh, when she was a small child. She At first, she acts as an interpreter for Kevin Costner's character because she knows a little bit of English from her childhood. And then eventually, she becomes Kevin Costner's love interest because, of course, the white people have to get together. The, yeah, the, the white people are the ones who they, they truly belong. You can't actually integrate to that society. And For 1990. Dances with Wolves was very progressive, but we're we're not going to have an interracial couple. Come on. No. Mary McDonald personally has made my life more difficult, but that's a whole other story. I said that the movie was good, yeah. not that it was perfect. <laughs> now, now, back in 1990, I thought it was just a cool story. What I didn't realize was that the movie describes a historical phenomenon so common that it was considered a legitimate problem in North America for a couple hundred years. White people going native. White people were like, fuck these cities. In 1753, a guy you might have heard of named Ben Franklin wrote a letter to a friend to discuss this very issue. He said, <clears throat> quote, When an Indian child has been brought up among us, taught our language and habituated to our customs, yet if he goes to see his relations and makes one Indian ramble with them, there is no persuading him ever to return, and that it is not natural to them merely as Indians but as men, plain from this, that when white persons of either sex have been taken prisoner by these Indians and lived a while among them, though ransomed by friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them, to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life and take the first good opportunity to escape again into the woods, from whence there is no reclaiming them. Unquote. Well, yeah. So Ben Franklin was like, what? Like, not only do, like, if you raise raise a little Indian kid and dress him up in all the right clothes, teach him get to send him to school, doesn't matter. No matter how long, if he gets a taste of his old life back, he will go back to them. But 
The same thing is true for white people, men and women. If they get, especially if they're, you know, captured young, they would if just If they get stay. just a, a hint <laughs> of freedom, then they'd be, those bitches be gone. If you take the example from Pain in the Ass, Mary McDonald's case and Dances with Wolves, it's easy enough to understand. Children quickly adapt to the family that they live with and adopt the culture and customs as their own. But the truth is, the issue kept happening regardless of age or gender or the circumstances under which the white person ended up living among tribal people. In his book Tribe, which I cannot recommend highly enough, journalist and author Sebastian Younger describes what happened when some 200 white prisoners taken during Pontiac's Rebellion were to be returned home to their original homes and families. The colonel in charge was named Henri Bouquet, and he was shocked both at the dedication the tribal people had to their adopted white family members and to the number of prisoners who had no interest in going back to their old lives among the white people. So one example was this Mingo warrior. Uh, This imprisoned woman who was taken during Pontiac's Rebellion was married to him. And even though she was taken as a prisoner, some people consider that this forceful situation, we don't know. However, we do know that both the woman tried to run back to her new husband and he followed the train of prisoners for hundreds of miles. Or, yeah, or at least 100 miles. I don't know exactly how the distance, but he followed them on foot, like snaring animals and giving her food and just staying nearby, leaving little gifts for his wife and and ever though they were warning him was like if you keep coming like we get back to town we're gonna shoot you and yet he showed incredible dedication to his wife and she tried desperately to get back to him and that was just one of thousands of stories like that well and you have to understand too especially at the time period and for being a woman where you actually had a little bit more sexual freedom or Mm -hmm. just freedom in general yeah she probably (laughs) had she probably had way more choice in marrying that uh, Mingo brave than she did to whatever oh, husband yeah. she, whoever she was sold off to in her original life, you know? Women had agency over their own bodies in yeah. native society. A woman could cast off her husband. And yeah. And, and while it's really find easy. Find another. It's really easy to overgeneralize <laughs> just because every tribe was different and had its own culture and rules. Mm-hmm. But in general, all like more primitive stone, like stone age and hunter gatherer cultures are way more equal among the genders well, and way more equal oh. period. Like just, just like egalitarian society where everyone has an equal opportunity to, to rise up and prove themselves. Yeah. And once you're a full member of the tribe, you're family. Yeah. And you're, they pre- treat you as family yeah, and whatever your shit was before tended to just be, you know, forgotten. Like, you know, once you're adopted into the yeah. tribe, your race and whatever happened before is meaningless. You're now part of this, this community, which is very much a family. So a guy named William Smith wrote around the same time, quote, the Shawnees were obliged to bind several of the prisoners and some women who had been delivered up afterward found means to escape and run back to Indian towns, unquote. Interestingly enough, at least one of the prisoners freed by Bouquet was a young woman named Rhoda Boyd, our fifth great-grand-aunt, who ran away from her rescuers in an attempt to rejoin a Native American tribe. Yes. So this was a widely discussed problem for the colonists, and there isn't universal agreement to this day as to why so many white people chose to abandon civilization and adopt a Stone Age way of life. But what was obvious to everyone was that it was a one-way issue. Europeans would often go Native, but it never seemed to happen the other way around. No, who the fuck would want to be a horrible European? <laughs> I mean, there are there are arguments. I mean, and the, again, this is. I mean, how far? What exact year was this? Well, in this case, we're talking uh, 
that was year 1782. So this is like, you know, when America was a brand new thing. Yeah. It's like even, yeah, America in general didn't want to be European anymore. So in letters to an American farmer, French immigrant and writer, Hector de Crevoquet wrote in 1782, thousands of Europeans are Indians and we have no examples of even one of those Aborigines having from choice become European. So, in other words, yeah. it's, it's the same thing. No, for for decades, and even going into the 1800s, this is just a thing, and none of the white people can get it. Like, why don't why wouldn't you want to live in our great culture? So, we'll talk more about the call of tribal life to white European settlers, but now let's see how this directly affected our family. Let's meet the Boyds, the quintessential colonial pioneers of the 18th century. I'm talking tough, independent folk who didn't even want to be able to see their closest neighbor's house unless they went walking in that direction. They wanted their land, they wanted their space, they wanted their privacy. Yeah, well, a lot of our family would still want that. Exactly. In fact, and there is a, a chunk of my soul that loves that too. Like every time we go up in the mountain, I'm like, yeah, I could I could totally see myself like retiring to get the hell away from everybody one day. Uh, I'm, I'm a convenience person though. I, it's like, yes, I would love to be away from everyone as long as the grocery store isn't too far i can't imagine my wife wanting to live on top of a mountain away from everybody but we'll see so yeah these were immigrants used to scratching at a hard living they were working 16 hour days six days a week just taking sunday off to chill and pray yeah i wonder why anyone would not want to do that yeah why would you want (laughs) to trade that for just hunting and fishing and and gathering stuff and then spending the rest of the time possibly (laughs) enjoying life occasionally So the Boyd patriarch was John, who sailed over from Ireland at the age of 18 before marrying a young woman named Nancy Yuri, the daughter of an established Pennsylvania pioneer family. Oh, Nancy. Yeah, we heard, Yeah, you already have a little spoiler alert from last time what happened to Nancy. We don't really know much about John Boyd other than his family was Scotch-Irish, a group of people who settled Appalachia and became the famously independent, tough, and private hill folk that are well represented in the area to this day. Now, while there's a lot to say about them, here's the the quick overview. The Scottish lowlands were a source of violent trouble for England going all the way back to the second century. That's when the Roman emperor Hadrian was so freaked out by barbarians, he built a coast-to-coast wall to block them off. And that's what separated northern England. He was England. the original builder of the wall? Yes, he was like, build the wall because holy shit, there are barbarians <laughs> who paint themselves in crazy colors and run down here and kill us all. The, the picks, specifically. Um, I can... I can see how that would be a problem. Even then, all these, you know, going centuries later, the lowland Scots were constantly having causing trouble for England. So, like, over 1,500 years after Hadrian, Elizabeth I, you know, the one played twice by Kate Blanchett, she died without leaving a successor because she was famously the virgin queen. Ah, <laughs> virgin Maya. Yeah, not actually, but, she, but <laughs> what she didn't have were kids. Uh, yeah, well, you know. And that's the problem. She, she wanted... She wanted her dude or no dude, okay? Yep. And so because of that, she didn't have any children to directly leave the throne to and ended her her line. And that's how we ended up with that motherfucker King James. Yes, and we're just that's that's who we're about to talk about. <laughs> James the Sixth, he suddenly found himself ruler of Scotland, Ireland, and England, and had to juggle the problems of all three countries. And and that is And he sucked dick at it. Yeah. <laughs> 
So what was his <laughs> genius idea for all these troublesome Lowland Scots? He's like, well, I've also got I've got Lowland Scots who are constantly rebelling. I've got these Northern Irish who are constantly rebelling against England. Why don't we punish the Irish by seizing their territory, giving it to English lords, and then telling these Lowland Scots that they can have free land in Northern Ireland? That's not going to be a problem at all. No, that doesn't cause any problems. <laughs> and everyone lived happily ever after. And there was never any violence or problems ever again. No, that's yeah. not how that went. Um, without getting too much into the weeds, there were uprisings from the displacement of the Irish. There were conflicts between Protestant sects and a bunch of other bullshit we're not going to get into now. But what it ultimately meant was that the constantly fucked over people from southern Scotland had gotten tricked into resettling under bad circumstances. And so when the when the call came out that there was you know land for real up for grabs in North America, a lot of people decided to go for it. The the situation in Northern Ireland was not great for the Scotch Irish. Yeah, no, yeah, no. <laughs> and from somewhere that constantly kept having like plague and famine as well. Oh yeah, in fact, get yeah. the fuck out of there. There were waves of, of Scotch Irish colonization. So. It, over the course of the 1700s, more than 200,000 of them made their way over to North America. Now, I was about to say, isn't our family Scotch-Irish twice? Oh, probably more than that. Like, we are heavily... <laughs> I mean, because I know directly, I'm just talking about, like, mom and dad. Yes, I mean, that, and that's... Because, yeah, mom's family is Scotch-Irish, this... but dad's family is Scotch-Irish as well. Now, the chambers themselves, we are directly Scottish. There was no trip to Ireland in the middle, as far as I can tell. If you directly go from our father's father's father, you know, going back to the chambers. However, a bunch of the other parts of the family are 100% Scotch-Irish. So because they were too poor to live in the coastal cities, most of them pushed westward into the hills and mountains of Appalachia. And that's where we get a lot of our relatives, the, you know, illiterate, violent, drunk, backwood redneck types. But these were people who were, I mean, they'd already were used to difficult times and fighting for what was theirs. So after they'd already been displaced more than once, they already knew they were living in a rough place with tribal people around, but they were like, you can sort of understand why. Well, yeah, but they could grow crops. Yeah, they could do their own shit. <laughs> Utopia, you can fucking eat. Yeah, and so you can understand why they were willing to, like, to stake their claim and fight for their land, even though it technically wasn't theirs. But you get it, you know, you get where they're coming from. They got fucked over. Yeah, I mean. And, and of course, they're being taught that these, that these you know, quote unquote savages aren't real people, you know, and, and, and certainly aren't being told you're stealing someone else's land. They're just told, come on over and settle. We'll give you a. Yeah, you know, it's America's <laughs> land, motherfuckers. Yeah, exactly. So, so sick of foreign governments and knowing that native tribes could try to attack them. They just, you know, grabbed their guns and their, and they just settled, you know, and built their farms and did their best. They were willing to fight their asses off just to scratch at a rough living in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And that rough living in the middle of nowhere was still 150 times better than where they came from. I mean, because at least for the most part, the government sort of left you the fuck alone. Oh, no. They were, very, they became addicted to being. <laughs> and that's another thing. It's like, come find me, assholes. And this group of poor, independent people who want the government to leave them alone, you can sort of draw a direct thread from there to today. And honestly, yeah. the government leaving most people alone is something I'm kind of for. Yeah. Let's jump ahead uh, a hundred, like to the year 1880 and check out a Pennsylvania newspaper called The Washington Reporter for Washington County, Pennsylvania. They printed an obituary of James Boyd, a respective local citizen who was our fourth great uncle. 
Within a few days, the reporter contained an obituary of Mr. James Boyd, better known as Uncle Jimmy Boyd, of Independence, Washington County. Interesting and eventful as was his long life, 99 years, his father, David Boyd, had a still more remarkable one. And appreciating the fact that the readers of this paper are deeply concerned in the history of the early pioneers of western Pennsylvania, we have penned a brief sketch of the elder Boyd. So, get this. So, this is basically, yeah, this guy. He was 99 yes. years old? Yeah, Jimmy Boyd. God damn. Jimmy Boyd lived to almost 100 years and apparently was very respected. His life was full of accomplishments. And yet when he died, the local papers just used it as an excuse to talk about his father, David, who was way more interesting. <laughs> So poor Jimmy is like, it's like, yeah, this guy was awesome. Let's talk about his Even dad. Even in death. <laughs> we love you, Jimmy. Your dad was so cool. All right. Uh, so most of the sources for this story for, are come from around the same time period, at least the ones that can be easily found online. So we're talking the late 19th century, more than 100 years after the events took place. These include newspaper articles, self-published family histories, and a book titled The History of Washington County, Pennsylvania, first published in 1882. But lots of the little details go back to primary sources, things like military service records and notes about prisoners exchanged and census forms and shit like that. All of that indicates that the main details of what I'm about to tell you are correct, even if some of the sources disagree on little details. But the main broad strokes definitely happen. So the following is the most likely version of this story I pieced together from reading a bunch of shit. Okay. We'll see. Hopefully I'm <laughs> close. So we'll talk about the day the Boyds went from being an unremarkable pioneer family to one that people talk about to this day. Because I literally found a YouTube video that mentioned them just last week. So that's how... Really? Yeah, I'll, I'll show that to you later. It's it's a short... Like, it's... Uh, and I wasn't looking for it either. That's the craziest part. I was... I was... It was related to research for this episode, but I was just Googling, like... Like white children abducted by Native Americans who didn't want to go back home. I was trying to find stories mm -hmm. like that. And literally the middle one says, the Boyd children. And tells a very <laughs> abbreviated and inaccurate version of this story. So it's cool. It's like the people yeah. literally are so Well, there was a bunch story. of them. So this is this story is like a big deal. So the Boyds were hardworking Presbyterian pioneers who strictly observed the Sabbath. Their only day off from backbreaking farm work. But that means they also loaded up extra shit on Saturday so they could afford to take the day off. So the mother, Nancy, was still recovering from childbirth and very much relied As on... one does. Yes. So she needed her pack of kids to get everything done on the farm. It was on a Saturday in February, 1756, when everything went sideways. John Boyd left his wife and children behind to visit their nearest neighbors. Um, they were weavers, a childless couple named the Stewarts. They lived over a mile away to grab some cloth. Nancy gave her children the marching orders, so there were, like, pairs of kids running around all over the property doing their chores. David was the oldest boy. He had, a, like, two older sisters, and he was 12, and his little brother, John Jr., was only six, and they were told to go collect wood for use in the town oven. So, like, this is back in the days when, like, a like a bread-baking kind of oven was not something you'd have in a home. You, you, okay. You'd have, like, a yeah. community it, oven. A community oven. So if you wanted to break your bake your bread, you would need to go timeshare the oven in town because they only had like just a, a simple you know wood burning stove at home so they could make like cornbread or like cast iron flatbreads and stuff like that but if you wanted to bake a real loaf of bread you had to go to the go to the town store or stove rather and sometimes you just really want a good yeah. fluffy soft loaf of bread exactly and you could bake a couple loaves of bread and that'll last you a couple days huge fan of carbs mm. well when you're working 16 hours a day you can eat all the fucking carbs you want so the young boys did not hear a sound, but David looked over his shoulder and suddenly saw a terrifying figure standing right by his little brother. Looking just so strange and otherworldly, he thought at first it was a ghost. 
or Bigfoot. But of course, it was it was a member of one of several members of a raiding party from the Delaware, who were. I was about to say, don't be stupid. They are way too dark to be ghosts. Well, that's what it said in the family history was that he thought it was a ghost. Besides, ghost doesn't mean pale. It could mean anything <laughs> spooky. Uh, let's see. So the Delawares, this was a raiding party. It wasn't just the Delawares. It was actually like a coalition of these tribes who decided to send these raiding parties out. And it wasn't just against the Boyds. It was about all the families in this area because this was in the middle of the French and Indian War, which we talk more about in other episodes. So Nancy, the mom, and all the kids are quickly snatched up and brought back to a rendezvous point. John was in the middle of walking back with his cloth from the steward's cabin and was missed. A stroke of luck that is the only reason he lived through this story. Making their way back to the Boyd home, the Delawares quickly determined that Nancy couldn't keep up with them and that carrying her baby, little James Thomas, was only slowing the group down. So they sat Nancy down on a fallen tree and allowed her to say one final farewell to each of her children except the youngest. That's a bummer. Yeah, yeah, I've already heard this, yep. so bye. R.I.P. Nancy. Yeah. It doesn't get easier. I mean, and again, baby murder should never be easy. No. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and say that despite all my sympathies for Native people, this part is not cool. Mm. Well, no, a lot of shit they did wasn't cool. No, no, it was bad. It was bad stuff being done. You know, these are are rough times. Let's just face it. It's not great to be, you know, if you're not rich, essentially you're, you're in a rough place at this time. I mean, and again, when you say rich, that just really includes men. This is also true. Even though I would, I would still, yeah, I still, because even when you were rich property, it still sucks. No argument there. I don't know. I, I honestly would have to think about it hard to make the choice. If I could go back, would I want to be a rich woman or a poor man in those times? And <laughs> neither are great, but... Mm. As David was being led away, he looked back over his shoulder to see his mother alive for the very last time. And even as an old man telling this story later, he couldn't do it without wiping tears out of his eyes. They said he cried every single time he talked about the last time he saw his mother. As she raised her hands heavenward and, and cried out, Oh God, be merciful to my children going among savages. And he said he remembered that, that prayer for the rest of his life. Two warriors were left behind to dispatch Nancy and little baby James. Bye, Nancy. Yeah, so long, Nancy. They returned and handed the scalps to David and his older sister, Sally, to carry for the rest of the day. Holding on to his mother's hair, David watched as the raiding party looted his family home and set fire to it. Others were doing the same all up and down the area, including the Stuarts, who were killed. A childless couple, they were gone. Along with other families, their homes were burned and robbed. And so they gathered... Uh, yeah, so this entire community was basically just wiped out. Well, not everybody, but a bunch of homes yeah. in this area. Because these were like the ones right on the edge. The ones who had dared to push further west. And so technically, this was done according to the treaty these guys had with the French. They were punishing these uh, these British colonists for pushing too far into what they considered French-controlled land. So this is literally considered part of the war, technically. Even though these are not combatants and... Personally, like, you know, at least to Western civilization, you know, attacking civilians is is uncool and scalping moms and babies is especially uncool. But again, it's certainly not. Baby murder is never cool. Let's not pretend that white people weren't doing some awful shit at the same time. And that the fact that there were plenty of reasons for everyone involved had good reasons for doing the things they were doing, even if they're horrible. So they are. All these people are getting killed. The, all the, the raiding party meets back up again at their rendezvous spot with plunder and prisoners, and they make their way west toward the Ohio country. 
Now, when John Boyd Sr. came within sight of his home, he saw he could put out the fire, but immediately turned to go warn others and organize a pursuit, which is like the only sensible thing he could have done. We don't really know much about, we don't like know much about what kind of guy John Boyd was, but there, I have like two pieces of information that make me have a mixed opinion about him. But this part, he absolutely devoted himself immediately and down the road toward recovering his wife and children. That's the first thing he's like, let my home burn. I got to go track them down. So he rounds up uh, locals from town and they found a bunch of local homes have been raided and burned. They tracked the natives west and they found scraps of Nancy's dress clinging to bushes and they followed more tracks to a ravine. That's where they found the bodies of Nancy and baby James. Uh... Yeah. The pioneers kept a hard pursuit for several days, but it was just no use. The fast moving raiders and their prisoners were long gone. So that's kind of where we left off. Uh, when I gave you the preview. Now I'm going to tell you what happened to David for the next five years of his life. Okay. So. So David was 12? He was 12 at the time. Okay. And like I said, he had two older sisters and several younger siblings. The youngest was um, his little brother, John Jr., who was six. And these kids were all half naked, half starved, and running around in February in Pennsylvania. And these guys were moving swiftly. Like, they did not stop to take meals during the day. They ate on the go. And then finally, after a few days, the hunters found a little bear nearby, killed the bear, cooked up some meat, and the kids refused to eat the meat. Meanwhile, they're looking over, and the raiding party is eating, like, cheese and shit that was stolen from their cabin (laughs) while they're being offered, like, half-raw bear meat that they don't want. So they're all starving but kind of refusing to eat. Okay. I mean, depression will do that to you. They're having a rough time. And stubbornness. The first couple of days couldn't have been great. Uh, they said that John Jr. cried and screamed a lot, and the older kids were worried that the that he was going to be killed too because he's too little to understand what was going on. He's wanted his mom. Yeah. So the, poor dude. Yeah. Not to mention, for the record, from someone who has kids that don't eat, they will. Yeah. If you don't give them something they want, they'll fucking starve themselves. They're little chicken nugget monsters. Yeah. Of course, asshole. Yeah. <laughs> A little in, this is a little more intense survival situation, but yes. Uh, the next now the next morning, they're like, "Fuck you! I don't want your bear meat. It's not a chicken nugget." David comes around on bear meat. Uh, the next morning, the, an older man among the Delaware made a shish kebab of the of bear meat. And he cooked it on the fire and gave it to David as they were setting out uh, to give him a snack he could kind of eat on the go. So David realized he was he had actual hunger pangs and he needed to keep up his strength because he realizes like if I fall behind I see what happens because the other day I was yeah. I was holding my mother's scalp by the hair which he also got to watch them like cure the scalp and dry it out over you know next to the fire that was great so he developed a taste for bear meat and made it all the way back so all the kids make it back to the the village in Ohio country the loot stolen from the homesteads was divided up between the tribes and the warriors who participated in the raids. And then when David saw some silver dollars that were that were both whole and cut. So like in the old days, you didn't have like different denominations. You have a silver dollar and they would literally cut it in half to make a half dollar and cut those in half to make quarters. So David recognized the... Yeah, because it was, it was by weight. Yeah. And the coins were literally were scored to make it to make it easy to cut them. Because they're made out of silver, easy to do. So that's literally, if you mm-hmm. wanted a quarter, obviously worth a lot more back then. So David recognized mm-hmm. the amount of cash his dad had taken to the Stuarts and saw that it had been taken. So he realized, oh, he, he assumed that his dad was dead too. Because the money his dad had on him was divided up as spoils yeah. of war. He had no idea his father was still alive. He knew his mom was dead. 
Uh, the children were also considered spoils of war and divided up between the different tribes. David would not see several of his siblings again for years, and we, to this day, have no idea what happened to John Jr. He might have either died or, because he was so young, he might have just kind of vanished among the native people and was never seen again. We just don't know. So let's just yeah. let's just think happy thoughts and assume he just grew up to be a badass happy warrior. Happy thoughts. <laughs> He, uh, he he was adopted by a nice family. But the fact that we know David's story and not John Jr.'s is probably not a good sign. Because we literally, we know what happened to every single one of the other kids. They're like all on the record. They're all accounted all for. All accounted That's for. Kind of that, amazing. No, no, out of this story. Except for this one. Yeah, out of all those kids, we have a baby who was murdered and John Jr. just kind of vanishes. So he might have just gotten sick. It may be a boring but sad story. But like I said, there is a chance he just got so lost he might have just he was so native that they never discovered who he actually was could be i like that version better so we'll go with that Mm -hmm. so the next year was pure hell for david as you can imagine he saw his sister sally again once but was not allowed to speak to her because she belonged to another group as a prisoner he was all but a slave he was forced to obey orders from literally everyone in the tribe they just go up and say you know go get me this go do that Give him some menial drop and give me 20. Whatever it is, he was just a, a second-class citizen forced to obey any actual member of the Delaware tribe. And he was also subject to ritualized abuse. Uh, sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he was routinely ordered to run the gauntlet, where two rows of women and children would taunt him and throw sticks and stones as he ran between them. So he was, like, constantly just covered in bruises and scrapes and scratches, constantly just called names and just treated like shit. That's horrific. Yeah, it's awful. This was a year of his life. He went from 12 to 13 at this point, and he was convinced every day he was going to be just woken up and killed. So he kind of reached a breaking point where being killed didn't scare him that much anymore. He was like, good, he's getting good sh- night, David. He's just getting the shit beat Sleep out of well. him. Sleep well. I hope you don't die. I might kill you in the morning. Yes, exactly. Every day for a year, this is what he's going through. Every once in a while, he's just forced to be humiliated and beaten with all. So he just reached a breaking point where he just wanted, all he wanted was a little bit of payback before he died. That was all he was asking at this point. But in the middle of this, that old man, which they describe as an old chief, and that's the way they said all the sources called him an old chief. I don't know if he was technically a chief as in a leader of the tribe, but he was clearly like a respected elder. He might have been like a medicine man. Maybe he was just super high. Yeah, just... just <laughs> we don't know. They called him chief. He was chief. So th- they called him the old chief. He was the guy who gave him the bear meat on the road. He would offer him advice or just little kindnesses. Just give him a little something. Give him some better food. Give him a little some uh, a little scrap of clothing or just like he was being nice to him, but usually only when nobody else could see. Like he'd sneak around a corner and like here have some have have some meat. Have this little treat. Whatever. That was the one person who was nice to him for a year. So there was like one humane dude. <laughs> One dude who took a, sh- a liking to David. He, he he was nice to him. Now, in the fa- in some of the family stories, they said that family tradition said this chief was Cornstalk, who you might have heard of if you've heard of Chief Cornstalk. He's a famous figure from this period, but it doesn't really matter because I checked into it. There's no way. There, nothing lines up. It's, there's, it's, total, there's nothing. it's total bullshit. It's not this guy. He wasn't. He wasn't a Delaware. He wasn't in the right part. He in the in the timeline doesn't add up. So it's a, it's a nice thing to say just to make this character a, like a f- more famous person. But nope, we don't. We to this day we just don't know. We just call him the old chief because that's all we know. So the old chief told David, gave him a little bit of advice. He's like, look, 
What you need to do is catch one of these people who throws shit at you and calls you names. Catch them alone and make it a fair fight. That way you can earn a little bit of respect around here. So David was like, this is probably going to get me killed, but let's do this. There was one <laughs> There was one asshole kid. He decided it was worth risking his life to break that guy's nose. And I, I, can, I have a lot of sympathy here because you ever had that yeah, one person? I mean, you, sometimes. Every once in a while, you're willing to get in trouble to fuck somebody up. I've been there, and it's happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm typically not someone who loses my temper violently, but I will throw a beer on a bitch. I will. I I more hurt you with words. Yeah. So, so David decided he was gonna go for it. He bided his time, and at some point, everybody was picking tree nuts to store up for the winter. And he found his opportunity. He found his his targeted bully alone. And he just walked up to him and sucker punched him and just tore him to the ground and gave him the kind of backwoods beatdown you can only imagine. Like after a year of frustration, he must have beat the fuck out of that kid. Fuck that kid. He probably deserved it. Oh no, it. it sounds like he did. So as written in the family history titled History and Capture and Captivity of David Boyd from Cumberland County, Pennsylvania, 1756. Quote, he sprang upon his tormentor, and they had a rough and tumble wrestle. But at last, the pale face found himself on top, and he redressed his wrongs as only an infuriated boy could. Finally, a noise attracted his attention, and looking up, he saw squaws and braves running toward him, tomahawks uplifted. It was sure death now, as it was his last chance, he redoubled his licks. Coming nearer and seeing his determination, they dropped their weapons and patted him on the back, saying, Make fine Indian. Make fine Indian. Mm -hmm. Unquote. So he beats a kid. He, it worked. They actually like, okay, mm -hmm. this kid's got some backbone. Maybe he's not just a worthless little white guy after all. That was a turning point where at least he got a little bit of respect and they stopped running him through the gauntlet because that's basically for only the people who are completely unworthy of respect. If you're not willing to fight up and stand up for yourself, then we're just going to fucking torment you. So his life got a tiny bit better after he beat the shit out of this kid. So there's a, there's a lesson. Sometimes that's the way it happens. There's your lesson, boys and girls. If somebody pisses you off, beat the shit out of them and, and everything will get better. This is another reason why children should not, should listen, not listen to this podcast. fucking podcast. Um, all right. So the chief would go out on important business for the tribe. And David was always anxious when he was gone. Because once again, this is the only guy who's nice to him ever. But then one day, the, the old chief had been gone for weeks. And then he got one morning two fully painted and decked out warriors just grabbed him up. And, and David was like, oh shit, this is it. This is the morning I'm going to get killed. This is <laughs> the day I've been waiting for for over a year. Because at this point he's like 14. So we're, we're 14 years old now. They get like two like warriors with their weapons in full war paint come and grab him. And they drag him off to a river in, uh, a few miles away. They strip him off down to all of his clothes, leaving him only with the belt that he was uh, that he had when he the day he was captured and they dip, dip him down three times in the water and according to the sources say go down white man come up red man then they shaved his head and left just a little tuft of hair at the top they painted his skin they put moccasins on his feet and dressed him in a hunting shirt the only thing left was that leather belt so then he was left brought back to the village and he found out that everybody had like gotten ready for some kind of crazy party the, all the warriors in the village were now dressed up painted as if for battle had their weapons and they were screaming and trying and chanting and the women were making all this noise. David didn't understand what was going on. Now, his grandchildren quoted him from when he was an old man years later saying, quote, Child, I can't describe my feelings as I would marched along. I could not conceive of what they were going to do to me. I suppose they were going to put me to death as there could be nothing else they would make such a parade about. But I had never seen anything like it among them before and it never gave me any intimation of what they were going to do, unquote. 
So the procession marched for several miles. David was in the front as these warriors are chanting and shouting behind him. He reaches an open meadow and the parade goes into a circle. And there's David is inside all decked out. And then the only other person inside the circle was this old brave in full dress and paint holding a large knife and a grim expression. And David's like, oh shit, this isn't good. <laughs> David was brave. This, yeah, this can't be Everybody's right. screaming. He's in this circle. This guy's coming at him with a knife. There was nowhere he could go, nothing he could do. So he just stood his ground. The old man advanced on him and the knife flashed. And then the belt around his waist was cut off. The very last piece of him from his old life as a white boy. Then the old warrior took David in his arms and, quote, cried out in the native tongue, my son, my son, my son. And then David realized that the old painted dude was the old chief. Was the old chief. Okay. And now. So he was officially adopted into the tribe by this dude. And now he's. Yes. He is now a Delaware warrior and adopted son of the, the chief. So the, uh, the belt was cut into pieces and divided up among the warriors, and the old chief presented his old hatchet back to him, the one that was captured the day he was taken and given to him as a spoil of war, his very first spoil as a, as a warrior of the tribe. So he got his old axe back, and he was given a new tribal name, which sadly does not come down to us. However, his adoption was celebrated. The whole tribe had a massive feast. Everybody got trashed on booze. As one does yeah. in a celebration. Hell yeah. The chief's wife immediately accepted David as her son. Oh, and yeah, apparently, though, the the celebration was so drunken and violent that the old chief pulled David out of his own party about halfway through. So let's go back to the tent because people are going to start fighting and things are going to get crazy. And he didn't didn't want his new son to get knifed because they're having (laughs) just a violent barbarian party. Which sounds kind of fucking, that sounds like it rules. I would go to that sounds party. Sounds like it's awesome, but also very dangerous. He's a 14-year-old boy who's brand new around here. So, uh, the, the old woman immediately, like, cleaned up his feet and pulled, like, thorns from him. I put salve on him and made a place inside their home for him. So David's, like, officially in with the head family of the tribe. So now he's, so now that he's got a sweet, sweet deal. Yeah, he went from being all but, I mean, everything but a slave and just constantly shit on every single day now he has got equal standing with any every other warrior nobody gives him shit from that day forward it is just you're now one of us the past doesn't matter anymore that's why that's like part of that ritual is to really mark the day the you know the old life ended and the new one began so now that he was a respected member of the tribe and loved as a son by an important man david's situation improved and over time he realized he truly enjoyed his life the tribe shared in good times equally, or they suffered together equally if things sucked. David's adoptive father was a patient and wise teacher, and David became an expert hunter and tracker, and throughout his life, until he was an old man, a legendary marksman and a successful fisherman. Dreams of going okay. home completely faded. Well, he has a new dad now. Yeah, he's a new dad now, and probably one that pays way more attention to him. Like, the old dad's like, here's your list of work to do for the next 12 hours, whereas this guy's, like, with him, by his side, teaching him how to hunt and fish and telling him stories and giving him wisdom. You can sort of see why one father may be a little bit more appealing than the other one. Even if even if John wasn't a bad guy, just like in, in these kinds of cultures, parents are so much more attentive. Whereas, let's face it, the... the well, because they can be, and they kind of have to be, as opposed to it's nothing but if we don't work to death, yeah. we don't survive. Yeah, it's this, it's this cultural difference between the two types of living, the farm the farm life versus the hunter-gatherer life. And frankly, the hunter-gatherer life involves a lot less hard work. 
it's more dangerous yeah. and it can involve a lot more hard times because you're not necessarily so however these tribes have been doing it for thousands and thousands of years and it worked so unless you got if you didn't get wounded or sick you're probably going to have a better probably, quality yeah. of life so if there's a lot to be said so david go you know he fully embraces his life as a, a delaware warrior now one funny little side note about the old chief is that i just found hilarious was apparently he had a habit that every time he ate a meal he would thank the great spirit and he would raise his arms in the air and go, ho, 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 like Santa Claus or the Jolly Green <laughs> like Giant. Like Santa Claus. <laughs> so that totally changed the picture of this guy in my head when I heard that part. So imagine David and his old, his new dad just getting down for a meal and be ho, ho, ho. Well, and see, from the moment you started calling him Old Chief, he's just like the Native American version of Snoop Dogg. There you go. So now he's just like, ho, ho, ho. Well, let's face it. These people were probably smoking up on the regular. That's why they called him yeah. Old Chief. All right. Now, one day, David, as a Delaware warrior, was out hunting, and he stumbled onto kind of a grim scene. He, he goes into a clearing, and he sees a white guy sitting on a log, all wide-eyed. He looks over and sees that there's a, a bunch of natives from a different tribe building a big fire. And David just kind of freezes there looking into the scene and the white guy looks up at him and apparently recognizes him as like a fellow white guy. And just like, yeah. he's like, what are they going to do to me? Are they going to burn me? <laughs> and David just, yeah. he doesn't know what to do. He does know these aren't his people. So he's like powerless to do shit. So he does a, yeah. he just does a Homer Simpson walk backwards through the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And just like, he felt bad, but there's Didn't like, see anything. there's like nothing he could do. <laughs> So for the left rest of his life, David wondered what happened to that guy. But let's probably nothing good. I mean, maybe they were just going to toast marshmallows and sing Kumbaya. But uh, I doubt it. So David felt bad. But what, what, what's he going to do? Maybe they were just going to keep him warm. He was like 15 years old. What was he supposed to do? And he had actually no real motivations to stick his neck out for that guy. Yeah. I mean, it would have been the heroic thing to do, but... He's not a hero. He's a he's a real. This could have also been a much shorter story. Yeah, he's a he's a real teenage boy, not a movie character. So that guy died almost certainly. <laughs> um, the following. What what happened to that guy? Uh, the following autumn, there was another adventure for David. Uh, this was a point where they were moving camp, uh, and so you know that's a really big undertaking because these are like semi-permanent camps. This is not a fully roaming thing. So they so so pulling up and setting down okay. is a, is a big deal. And one old woman was put in charge of moving the ammunition for their muskets. And she took the balls but forgot the gunpowder. Ooh. So they're like, well, fuck. We kind of need that for these guns to work. So uh, even though there was some argument about it, David had volunteered to be to, to go and fetch the powder. Because they had moved because of how dangerous shit was. This is still in the middle of the French and Indian War. And the old chief was kind of reluctant. But David's like, no, I, you know, this is, this is important and I can do this. So finally his father relents and they pick another boy to go with him. So David and his friend go rushing off to the old camp to go find the, the gunpowder that was left behind. But unfortunately the morning fire before they had left had never been put out. Reached dry grass. So the boys are like coming from the distance and there's this incredible explosion kaboom like they're literally jesus this huge explosion <laughs> happens um and the, the old camp explodes and they're like well shit their mission's already a failure they didn't get to the powder in time to save it mm -hmm. so they decided to turn around and head back to the new camp and they stumbled on a, a flock of wild turkeys score so they kill a turkey mm -hmm. make camp for the evening 
And they're cooking some uh, turkey over an open fire, which smells great to a local pack of wolves. <laughs> so they grab the turkey and ran, like stuffing cooked turkey in their mouths as they're running. Wolves are coming after them, and mm-hmm. finally they like throw the bird over their Feathers shoulder. Feathers are flying everywhere. Well, hopefully they plucked it first. But uh, they so they like throw the bird over their shoulder to slow the pack down, and they scramble up a tree. Uh, and so like they spent a sleepless night with wolves just circling and jumping up and scratching the trunk of this tree and scaring the shit out of them. But eventually, the next morning, the, the, the wolf pack gives up, leaves. They go back uh, to the camp in failure, only to be screamed at by the old woman who's the one who'd fucked up in the first place. Fuck you, old yeah, woman. This was your screw-up, lady, but apparently the old chief told him to run and hide and wait until she calmed down because she was ready to beat them. Yeah, that that's actually kind of awful because yeah. it's like, he, yeah... I didn't forget the gunpowder. I didn't put out the... I didn't... I wasn't the one who didn't put out a fire. I don't know much Fuck about this guys. lady, but I think she sucks. <laughs> she yeah. screwed up and wanted to beat a bunch of kids. Maybe she... Maybe she shouldn't be put in charge of things. Yeah. So, time went on and fortunes changed in the French and Indian War in ways we'll talk about in an upcoming episode. But it ended with David's tribe making peace at a British fort. As he walked between lines of redcoat bayonets... They saw, like, a bronze-skinned, dark-eyed young warrior in full paint and moccasins. Literally no one even recognized that David was a white man. And he's... he was. I'm sure after being in the sun, he was more of a bronze man yeah. at that oh, point. Oh, uh, for sure. <laughs> and this was the point when the old chief first realized that his love for David meant he should return him to his own people and original family. And he told David for the first time that John Boyd had not been killed in the raid several years before. Now, David actually objected to this plan, but but the old chief paid an Englishman $2 to write and deliver a letter to John Boyd to tell him, hey, your son is still alive and I'm going to bring him back to you safely. Not, not asking for anything. Just like, I'm going to bring you ba- bring your, your kid back to you. Because he basically could see the which way the wind was blowing and realized that that being a Delaware like long term wasn't going to be the safest thing for David and he loved him that much that he would rather him live a long life rather than go down fighting oh wow yeah that's a, so like he, gen, his, genuine his love adopted dad was like get out yo no. get out while you still can now this this part is, is is weirdly heartbreaking to me because even though it's like yeah this old guy he was there with them like he was part of the raiding party that killed david's mom and captured him yet you can also not deny from this story that he genuinely seemed to to love him and was willing to make personal sacrifices for him so it's it's weird to know how to feel you know so he's he's losing his family again yeah now john so this is it's the second time in david's life that he literally has had to say goodbye to his family it's it's kind of sad but it takes him a little bit longer before this happens. Uh, John Sr. received the letter, but he did not believe a word of it. He was convinced that someone was fucking with him because he hadn't seen any of his kids in years and was convinced they were all dead. It's like, I found my yeah. I found my wife and baby dead. I haven't seen anybody else. Why is somebody writing me five years later and telling me my son's alive? He didn't believe it. However, having sent the letter, the old chief kind of became interested in the process of reading and writing and asked David if he would teach him. So this is kind of a sweet story where David grabs you know, uh, some tools to, to teach. And he teaches the old chief, the English alphabet and had like pages from an old book of Psalms that they'd, he'd had from, that was taken all the way back from the cabin. And so he teaches the chief. And so as an old man, he would tell his own grandchildren just how proud he was listening to this old guy learn to read. He spent some time and autonomous. So they spent the winter trapping furs, but as the old French trading situation was very much disrupted by the war, they couldn't make any sales. They just had a bunch of furs. So it hit the old chief hard that time was running out and that times were changing and that his own time to teach and protect David was running out. 
So quoted in the family story, the old chief said, quote, Do you see how swiftly the sun is going down? And my sun will soon be set too. Then I will be in the happy hunting grounds where my sun is, and I want to restore you to your own father before I go, unquote. When spring came, they packed their best ponies with furs and made the journey east, just the two of them. The old chief provided all the protection they needed while still in native land, but when they crossed over into British-controlled territory, they tied a white cloth to a stick and literally walked under a flag of truce. When they reached the town of Carlisle, the white teenager and old Delaware chief caused quite a commotion, and a guy named Thomas Urie was summoned to see if David was truly his long-lost nephew. So the stories say that Thomas Urie like immediately wanted to pull his gun and kill the old chief the moment he saw him because that's the guy who helped kill his sister. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. So he had to be talked he it's had to so be talked down. But all the people in town were like, You can't attack this guy. He came in under a flag of truce. He's returning this kid. This you can't murder him. Yeah, you can't just murder that's, him. That's not okay. <laughs> so David really wanted to bring his adoptive father to meet his biological one. But his uncle said, Oh, hell no. Oh, fuck and, that. And probably... T- yeah, I, I could see how that would be a conflict of interest. I can imagine that John Sr. probably would want to shoot the chief in the face if he had actually showed up on his doorstep. Be like, yeah, like, and like it- sorry about you ruining your life. Here's one of your kids back. <laughs> oh, and he's very different. He's pretty great. <laughs> he's awesome now. I fixed he's- him. <laughs> uh, that did not work out that way. So they had to say their goodbyes earlier than planned. and but And the chief did not want to push his luck because he knew... He knew that these guys could just shoot him and nobody would care. Yeah, except for except for poor, poor, poor David. David, who would probably... Yeah. Who, who's, at this point, I feel, has been through enough. And I'm guessing that David was probably the reason why this old guy didn't get murdered. Because he's like, no, 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 he's really... Yep. <laughs> he's good. He's bringing me back. He's aight. So, instead, the old man sold the furs and the ponies. He bought a brand new outfit, like nice clothes for David to wear when he went to meet up his father again, and then gave him all the money and everything except for what he needed, just one pony and enough to take him back into the Ohio country. He gave everything else to David. So he really did love this kid. I mean, it's like very clear all the way through. And the fact that David had way more to say about this old guy than his own father. Okay, so again, we're at the tragic yeah. heartbreak another goodbye. of this kid having to say goodbye to yet yeah. another parent. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, this time that's only extra shit. Yeah, this time by love and adoption, but he had to say that second goodbye, and he never saw the old chief again or found out what happened to him. It was another twenty-mile trip from Carlisle to the small farm where John Boyd still lived, rebuilt farmhouse, now had a new wife, new kids. And we don't know much about their reunion, except that farm life was intensely unsatisfying for David. And in fact, he attempted to run away and made, and announced very loudly that he had no intentions of sticking around. So they apparently, they like the family literally guarded him and tried to make sure he didn't run off for a while. Because he was like, fuck this, I'm not going to stick around here. You guys suck. <laughs> yeah, why would, yeah, you people suck. I, I could imagine how that wouldn't be... An ideal situation. Yeah. And again, he pro- and again, and it, he probably didn't walk into the loving situation that he just left either. No, this is going back to a strict Presbyterian family. It's all about discipline and hard work. Yeah, I, I would fucking want to go back to old chief yeah, too. Old chief Fuck who, this who loves you and teaches you and gave you everything. Like practically gave the shirt off his back. So it's it's complicated to know how to feel about it. Um, now David did settle down, didn't he? Did not go back to the Ohio country. But he'd stayed restless and unimpressed with life among white people for his entire life and had plenty to say about it, even until he was an old man. Now, 
there are many theories as to why so many white people went native and there are no real examples of tribal people eagerly adopting a civilized life. But hearing this, you can kind of understand now why David liked the life among the Delawares. And in fact, not only that, but except for little John Jr., every single one of his siblings at different points had a chance to go back home. Every single one of them at least attempted to run away. <laughs> so that's literally a f- like, uh, it was like five for five. So I kind of have this impression that maybe John, he may have like been devoted to his family, but he probably wasn't a nice father. Like nobody wanted to go back and live with him. Well, I mean, have you met Presbyterians? Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> that was, and, by the way, <laughs> that was by the probably way, colder than it. All of our ancestors on both sides are Presbyterian. <laughs> like it's like on, like it's the, where most of us came from, at least on the chamber side and the boys. I said what I said and I stand by it. <laughs> Got it. Um, so we didn't spend the rest of our lives recording this episode. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version of what happened to the rest of David Boyd's life. He married a young woman named Elizabeth Henderson in 1771. The Hendersons were a very well-regarded family with money. So David, nice. so David went from being a dirt farmer to a, a Delaware brave to married well into white society. And you can probably imagine David was probably a very interesting figure from his background. He's probably physically impressive and, you know, yeah. a cool guy. Well, yeah. I mean, if he were gonna, he he was depending. And the description of him, some kind of the description of him was 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 having dark hair and dark eyes. So so imagine like a deep tan, good shape guy, and then so and well known like for the rest of his life, even as a you know living back as a white guy. And yet he was Scotch Irish. Yes, Scotch Irish dude. Uh, you know, (laughs) legendarily known as being an expert marksman, good hunter, great fisherman, and enlisted three times in the Revolutionary War. Ooh, was an actual enlistment? Yes, no, he... Not just they, like, forced no, him to no, do it? three years in a row, he volunteered, and according to family tradition, he was at the bloody field of Brandywine. He was present for the crossing of the Delaware River and the surprise at Trenton. He spent the winter with George Washington at Valley Forge. So he was a full, cool. full-on badass. And he was known, he was, uh, let's see, oh yeah, and he apparently, like, the family told about how he was the one who shouted to everybody and told how great it was when Lafayette brought back and said the French were going to support the revolution. So, like, he was right there in the middle of it with everybody. So, you can consider him. Oh, that's kind of So, cool. he's like a background character in Hamilton. You can just imagine him being one of the people dancing on the stage, just anonymous soldiers in the middle of the Revolutionary War. So, he might have even met both of these people. There's a chance that he at least, you know... Went, you know, walked by and said good morning to General Washington, which is kind of cool. Yeah, if he was at the crossing yeah. in Delaware. Yeah. And he was in a Valley Forge. Yeah. So as a fun little side note, the, the service records from the Revolutionary War do show his three enlistments. The first one was in 1775 as a sharpshooter under one Captain James Chambers. Oh, really? Yeah, that was such a cool little footnote. Now, I don't think this one is any direct relation to us, but just that name popped up. I was like, that's it's that's, still... that's spooky, you know? Oh, goodness. Because I was on Ancestry. I literally saw the little piece of paperwork that survived to this very day that showed his service and showed the name of, it's like, sharpshooter, Captain James Chambers. You're like, James like, Chambers. Hey, that, that's a good name. I like that name. <laughs> I'm sure Captain James Chambers was a proper British soldier. So, his time fighting the Redcoats stirred enough hatred against the British that it influenced his politics many years later. His sons were all in open support of President John Quincy Adams, but David stubbornly refused uh, to vote for him. He supported Andrew Jackson. And his one reason was, quote, if he whipped the British, he could be trusted to govern the United States, unquote. So, it's literally just like people say for Trump. I like him because he's strong and tough. 
even though That's... like Trump, John, uh, you know, Andrew Jackson sucked a lot. <laughs> and it's really ironic considering how much he loved Native Americans. And Andrew Jackson was the worst president toward them in the history of a bunch of shitty presidents. Like, mm. there's no good ones. There's not a single good one uh, when it comes to Native American relations. But Andrew Jackson takes the fucking cake. And yet David Boyd voted for his ass. But his own kids were just simply saying, father's getting old. <laughs> father's getting yeah, you can't trust rednecks to yeah, vote. They... That's really what it is. Sometimes they get it right. <laughs> In a few weeks, we're going to be talking about George Wallace and rednecks voting a lot. That'll be fun. Ew. So, by all accounts, David Boyd was well-respected, well-read, and apparently he had a personal library filled with history, politics, theology, and he was a devout Presbyterian throughout his life. He said when he, when he and his wife, Elizabeth, got married they like built a little altar in their home and were very super like strict religious folk um he died in 1831 oh sorry he died in 1831 in in the state of pennsylvania that was completely unrecognizable from the rough frontier country he grew up in and his adopted people had been killed off or driven west they'd been long yeah it sucked for them however among david's many children because he and elizabeth got busy oh you mean she was constantly pregnant But this time, not murdered. She actually just Surprise she just face. lived a life. Now, they had a son named William. He grew up to have a son named Hugh, who was the father of Henry, who was in turn the father of Ben. Benjamin Boyd's daughter was named Ruby, our grandmother. And that's it. That's the connection of David Boyd to and us. Ah, oh, that was, that's a brutal story. Yeah, that was story. a rough story. It's, 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 as usually is the case when you really look into these things, it's like you never know exactly how to feel. Because on one hand, it's super easy to paint simplistic pictures. But the truth is, even if the root thing cutting is unfair, like the way the natives were treated was 100% unfair. But you can like individually understand why people made their own decision. You can understand why the Boyds were willing to risk what happened to them in order to say, you know, I got we got fucked over and in two other countries before this one we are gonna stand our ground on this one and you know it so in other words like you said everybody sucks but you can also find these little moments of decency and and love and generosity even in the middle of all the horror well truly that's kind of a metaphor for for all existence it's it, it is it's it's it when you take something as a big picture, it's usually terrible and horrible, and you have to sort through and find the happy and the humanity and the decent. Because people are both decent and horrible. We're complicated people, which is why I like kittens. <laughs> yeah, kittens are just assholes. <laughs> no, oh, I'm holding my kitten, and he's very. We, we have very kitten sweet. on the podcast at the moment. Yeah, and another thing too for anybody who's interested in this whole call of the wild kind of a thing where people like you know to really explore why people might prefer this sort of stone age way of life over you know civilization there's a couple books i recommend one of them is i mentioned before it's called tribe by sebastian younger and another one is called civilized to death by dr christopher ryan and both really go into this whole like really lay out the case of why communal living in this in this more primitive way that's a little bit more connected to nature where people are treated equally where personal property really isn't much of a thing it's it's women have like women have uh agency over their own bodies and yeah Yeah, so it's like especially there's there's a number of ways you can see and honestly i feel like it, it also can provide a roadmap for us in modern life it's like it's not like we should all just go leave our homes and go into the woods 
But what we can do is understand that the things that make people happy are about community and are about sharing, are about about having a closer connection to, to nature and to you know, putting ourselves in these cages that we built for ourselves and this society that makes us do selfish and awful things to other people. It's bad for us. And we can still keep toilet paper and dentists and Netflix and still maybe live a slightly better way for the human soul. That's kind of my case I'm going to make here at the end of this podcast. We can do better. We can do better and get so a kitten get a kitten take a walk go get take a, a go, go for a nice hike in the woods do something nice for another human being don't murder families and scalp babies yeah never murder babies and uh we will begin talking together again soon to do the conclusion of young george washington and the in- end of the french and indian war before moving on to bigger and better things so uh so now yeah. let me if anyone wants to follow me on twitter my at is jamie1km you can go to my website at jamiechambers.net or if you want to support this podcast we the current best way to do that is on patreon which is patreon.com slash jamiechambers don't find me one thing i will be doing shortly <laughs> is starting up some chainsaw history social media accounts so we can post links and little pictures and other bullshit that we find uh stuff to articles sources for anybody who actually enjoys this sort of thing uh for now Go hug a cat or something. Go, uh, yes, go outside. Snuggle find a kitten. A cat. Give some, yeah, you know, give someone who you're probably not going to infect a hug. Open a door for someone. Be nice to your fellow humans. Remember, Jesus was a socialist. So is Santa Claus. So is Santa Claus. Ho, ho, ho. All right, everybody. I think that does it for this very first bonus episode. We will catch you next time. See ya. Bye.